This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. The second Arnold Clark Cup is England's again. A great set of results for the Lionesses, wasn't it? Congratulations to them. Uh, I'll be chatting with Dom Smith about it all very soon. But before that, just wanted to say, as always, thank you very much for tuning in to the recent episodes. The one with Asa Fogelberg and her book, Three Lions and a Kitten, went down really well. I don't think many were expecting the twists and turns that happened there. Uh, it is, as always, still available at your podcast provider of choice or threelionspodcast.com. This episode, of course, is dedicated to the Lionesses. Uh, of course, on the back of their recent Arnold Clark Cup win. But before we get to that, there has been some recent news that concerns the Lionesses that I wanted to mention. First up, the announcement of the fixture against Australia, or the Matildas, as they are commonly referred to, uh, due to be played on Tuesday the 11th of April. Great fixture. Sold out straight away. It will be a real test ahead of the World Cup and it will come a few days after the finalissima at Wembley against Brazil. I've no problems with the date or the opponents. What I do take issue with is the venue. Brentford's Community Stadium. Now I went there during the Euros last year. It is a really nice ground. It's new. It's modern. It's safe. It's accessible. Everything about it is great. I love it. But it only has a capacity of 17,250. I don't know if, as a stadium, as a club, Brentford, if they've been rewarded for hosting some of those Euro games uh, with this fixture. But the demand for tickets has totally outstripped supply. Back in 2018, the Lionesses played Wales at Southampton St Mary's. 25,000 turned up then. 2019, before the World Cup at Brighton, there was 20,000 uh, to see them play New Zealand. 29,000 against Brazil at Middlesbrough. Then obviously the Euros happened. And since that Germany final came, the Lionesses have played six games here in England. Not one of those has had an attendance below 21,000. And I think at a time when people are consistently saying the women's game needs to grow, needs to get bigger, using venues like this doesn't help. Doesn't help full stop. I think also the FA, they've missed a trick by not holding it up north. Seeing as many recent games have been southern as well, the, the finalissima, as I mentioned, will be played at Wembley against Brazil. I have to confess, I've not looked at any other venues or fixtures that may clash with this date. But 
even holding it somewhere close to St George's Park, Derby, Forest, both big stadiums with decent capacities, or go further up, test the water at Newcastle. I think any of those would be more beneficial than Brentford. It just seems a little short-sighted of the... I'm assuming it's the FA who choose these venues. Um, Yeah, disappointing, personally, I, I think. But just going back to the Matildas, they recently won the four-team Cup of Nations that was held in Australia, similar to the Arnold Clark Cup. Uh, it featured Spain, the Czech Republic and Jamaica. It's worth noting that 11 of their squad currently play in England. Uh, that includes Sam Kerr of Chelsea, Caitlin Fjord of Arsenal. They will be strong opponents. And they're a team that we've not faced since 2018 when we drew one all with them at Fulham. And previous to that, we've won three and lost one of the five games played against them. Uh, meanwhile, with the World Cup to be played later in the year in Australia and New Zealand, we now finally know who the last three nations to join it are. They've had their three playoff matches recently. Haiti won the playoff Group B after beating Chile in a dramatic game. Uh, That means they complete Group D, which is our group. They will be the Lionesses' first opponents on the 22nd of July. They'll also face Denmark and China because they are in that same group. Uh, Playoff Group A, which was played after Playoff Group B, uh, for whatever reason, Uh, Portugal beat Cameroon to make it to their first ever World Cup. And playoff Group C, Panama beat Paraguay. They too will make their World Cup debut later this year. And of course, as the World Cup gets ever closer, I'll be speaking with more people about it all. Now, let's get back to the Arnold Clark Cup. And as always, it's my pleasure to welcome Dom Smith back to the podcast. Hello, Dom. Hello there. You well? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. The Lionesses, they've picked up the Arnold Clark Cup for the the second time running, thanks to three victories, 4-0 against Korea, 2-1 against Italy, 6-1 against Belgium. All in all, uh, a very positive set of results. In effect, though, they are just friendlies. It's, it's a friendly tournament, um, but it's good to see them coming through with with lots of positives. I was at the the Milton Keynes game against Korea, the four nil one. Yourself, you were there in a in a journalistic capacity, seeing all of them, weren't you? I was, yeah. Um, and and as you say, you know, England were at moments fantastic, but um, at no moments in any of the games did you think that they wouldn't win that match, and. Um, of course, they pulled through and won all games and uh, retained the trophy. Last year, when they won it originally, they didn't win every game, but there was a slightly higher calibre of opposition then. But it's nice to see that this time they were able to win every single match they played. And um, yeah, that 29-match unbeaten run just keeps being extended un- under Wiegmann. It's interesting, when you go back and, and count up, you know, each each different Lioness game I'm at, I go back to the beginning and count up the games that they've played under Wiegmann and they haven't lost just to make doubly sure that I'm getting the number right. 
And and if you look the immediate period before she came in, they lost their last two games. So it really has been a dramatic turnaround under her. No, you're right. And you must, every time you look at it, you go, okay, so the last one, 27 games, this is 28, this is 29. You, you have to really sort of make sure that this is right. If you're going to give stats of this sort of stature yeah. out, yeah, it's it's incredible feat. But played 29, 125, drawn four, 137 goals and only nine against. Um, yeah, nine goals. I mean, the 120, what, what was the goals? Sorry. 137, according to ITV is what they said after the Belgium game. 137 is very impressive. Um, some of the opposition that England have played have not been impressive. Of course. But um, but nine goals against that really is impressive. That that re- I mean I mean and in the middle of that is an entire tournament where England didn't get knocked out in the group stage and so only played three games, but won the thing and so they played six. So to to have a tournament included in that and two qualifying camp or, or one qualifying campaign, I think, um, and not to have conceded any you know double figures in terms of goals, that is really impressive. It's it's an amazing statistic, um, and just just one of those goals. I'm going to go straight into it. Uh, one of the goals against the the one against Italy. Um, mm. it, there's so many scenarios that unfortunately go against um, England in this this particular instance, with the fact that there's no VAR. Uh, the game at Coventry there, but yeah, it was unfortunate because I didn't think that the ball went over the line in the the final instance where uh, uh who was the goalkeeper for that one uh, Ellie uh, Roebuck Ellie Roebuck uh, I think she palmed it away but I don't think it crossed the line there um but the ball just prior to being crossed over was very reminiscent of the I think it was Japan Spain in the World Cup the men's World Cup in Qatar where I think is that curvature of the ball scenario again mm. Although I think this was more likely to um, to have gone out than that. I mean, I remember watching that Spain-Japan game and maybe it's a bit haughty of me to talk about what I thought on first viewing. No one should ever go on first viewing. Yeah. Um, that's the whole reason that, re- that VAR has been brought in as an idea. Um, but yeah, my first, my first thought of the Japan-Spain one at the World Cup was that the ball was just kept in because of how curvature works. Um, but I didn't think that here. And I had a decent view in terms of where I was sat Okay. Um, in terms of the cross, and I did think the cross was out, and I think it was just out. Um, on on the replays on the TV, I watched the match back afterwards because we don't get that when you know when, when we're covering it. But what I, I rewatched the match, and I, I think they paused it at the wrong time, just a split second okay. too late. Um, so I think that the cross was out, um, and I think that the ball was definitely not over the line. Um, clearly, it was going over the line. Ro- Roebuck's attempt to keep the the um, you know, Sofia Cantore's effort out wasn't a good uh, wasn't a good attempt by Roebuck, really, and it was going in. But I do think that Alex Greenwood cleared it off the line. And I spoke to Ellie Roebuck after the um, the match, and I said, "What did you think?" And she, you know, she agreed with me that that the cross looked out, um, and that the header didn't look to have crossed the line. But she then, you know, caveated that, and I think it's important to say this. She did say, "This is on first viewing. I haven't seen it back. I don't know." Uh-huh. Um, but at the end of the day, you know. I don't think that's such a bad thing because England were in control of that match. And I know that this is the, this is the middle match. And I'm sure we'll speak about the South Korea match as well. But England were in control of that match. And Italy were picked as an opponent at this tournament because of their counter-attacking um, possibilities. And I don't think England let them counter-attack 
particularly much. So I think it's a good thing that England conceded that goal. Mm. Um, I don't think it's a good thing for football that a goal was given when maybe there are two reasons why it shouldn't have been given, obviously. But I think it's good for England that that, was, that, that goal was given because it, it's good for teams that were coming into a World Cup year to have things go against them, against the run of play that they that they didn't bank on, you know, they, were, they weren't accounting for, and then how can you react? And England, of course, reacted really well and they, they scored the winning goal within nine minutes of conceding that. But I asked Viegman about that after the game as well. You know, what, did you not think it was actually a good thing, irrespective of whether it should have been given, that your team had to come through that? And, you know, she agreed. You know, she said conceding is always a bad thing, but it's good learning, she said. How you react to it. Yes, you're right. Uh, and it was Rachel Daly who reacted to it after she'd put us ahead uh, in the game. Two headers uh, for her. The thing with Rachel Daly, and I'm, we all know how how good a player she is, but is she a little bit too versatile for her own good? Obviously, she's mm-hmm. she's the left back and had been throughout the the Euros, the successful Euros tournament. Now she's scoring goals for fun for Aston Villa. And Sixteen and eighteen. Is that what it is? Wow. 16. 16 and 18 in all competitions, helped by a four-goal haul in the FA Cup. But but the top scorer, joint top scorer in the WSL, which is maybe a more helpful stat. Wow. Is she in consideration to be a striker for the Lionesses when there is Alessia Russo up there banging the goals in as well? Um, well, I wrote my piece for the following day's paper about that, actually. I wrote basically that I think that Wiegmann has been looking for a long time to see who can be the deputy to Alessia Russo, given that Ellen White has retired from England duty. Yeah. Um, uh, in fact, I think she's retired as a footballer, hasn't she, Ellen White? Um, yes. Uh, of course, yeah. Um, pregnant now, of course. Congratulations to her. Um, but I think, really, maybe the solution to the deputy to Russo was under Wiegmann's nose all the time, and I think it might be Rachel Daly. Is she too versatile for her own good? Maybe slightly, yes. I mean, if you if you measure success as a footballer in terms of how many matches is a player going to start, then she probably is too versatile for her own good because she was fortunate to start at left-back as a right-footed striker for England at the Euros and to keep the, uh, pretty much the player that I think is one of England's best, which is Alex Greenwood out of the team. I think Alex Greenwood is an unbelievable player. But I don't think that will happen in the Euro, uh, in the World Cup. I think that Alex Greenwood will come in at left back. I think she was superb in this tournament. But do I think that Rachel Daly is capable of starting up front for England? Absolutely. Do I think she will be chosen to start up front for England? No, I don't. I think that her her involvement in this World Cup in Australia and New Zealand this summer will be thirty minutes at the end of matches coming on for Russo uh, for fresh you know, fresh legs up front. So. That's that's the answer to my question. Versatility is really important. It will secure her a, a place on the plane until she's no longer England quality, um, because she, you know, picking her is like picking two players. But um, you know, will she ever start? Will, will she be a starting player as Vigman's tenure um, continues to unfold? I'm not so sure she will. But coming on as as a thirty minutes to go player is is still no bad thing when you've got a player of her capability when the yeah. game is getting stretched and and she can come on and and score for fun as as she's been doing so so yeah as like she's a a shoe in for the plane just even if Alex Greenwood was to to potentially get injured in a game or or mm. beforehand obviously fingers crossed touchwood she doesn't but let's as we've gone a 
um, ask about face as, uh, as my fault for going straight into Italy. But let's go back to the, the career game. And it was 4-0 to the Lionesses. It was one-way traffic, really. I didn't think that Korea held a lot of weight, if I'm honest. But apparently they, I think that they were unbeaten in their previous five games um, with only two shots against them in those five games I'd read. So they, England really showing their, their class against decent sides. Mm, um, absolutely. And they were brilliant in that match. They, they start quite slowly, I thought, England, um, quite tentatively against South Korea, um, whose manager, Colin Bell, um, not that one, no. said on. Uh, said afterwards that he thinks that England are the best team in the world. And and who are we to disagree, really, with, with the numbers that England are posting and the stats that they're providing us with at the moment? And the performances, of course, because football's not just about stats. But yeah, England were fantastic. Um, someone asked Serena Wiegmann before the second match, I think it was, against Italy. Someone asked why, after playing Canada, Spain and Germany in the inaugural edition of this competition, which England, of course, won last February, have the quality of opponents picked this time been sort of a rung down on the, on the ladder? Um, and she said, basically, uh, we don't play teams that we haven't chosen. <laughs> so she basically said um, it was by complete design that this happened. Okay. Um, we, we wanted to secure, and she's told me this before, You know, we really were desperate in the Arnold Clark Cup last year to, to get a win under our belt against a big nation. And of course, that took to the third game, but it but it was against Germany who ended up playing them in the final of the Euros just months later. And, of course, that secured them the trophy. So they got that. They managed to tick that off. Um, a big win against a big, you know, prestigious football nation. Now they wanted to try their their hand at breaking down different types of teams in terms of how they play. So Italy was seen very much as a counter-attacking side. Um, now, I don't necessarily believe that they would have been the first choice among counter-attacking sides. I mean, what I, I wonder, would you really pick Italy in a tournament if you could have France? I'm not sure you would. Um, anyway, she insisted that. Belgium, very much the best of the three nations, in my opinion, anyway, slightly better than Italy. Um, that didn't pan out in the end, of course, but I think mm. they are a better team than Italy. And South Korea is a team that really bed in um, and kind of uh, sit back. And I hate the phrase park the bus, but to all intents and purposes, that's what I mean. Yeah. Um, but England, in the end, broke them down really well. And, and you know what strikes me about this England team is if they haven't done it in the first half or even after 60, 70 minutes of a match, they're, they're not winning or they're losing. There's just never a worry because the options off the bench and the extent to which the difference between England and their opponents' energy levels in the in the um, in the latter stages starts to diverge as England have continued to uphold that um, ability to run and start again and keep attacking, and their opponents just can't keep them at bay. And so, a lot England have scored a lot of of late goals under Wiegmann, and 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 that happened, of course, um, with, with with Lauren James. You know, at the head of the attack, really, against South Korea. And I know that England only scored one late goal in that game, but they scored quite a lot in the Belgium game. But what I'm really saying is just the number of attacks that were made in the 75th minute onwards. England, in no none of these matches, were they slowing down and trying to win win the game by holding it out. And and certainly in South Korea, in the South Korea match, that was um, that was there to see. England kept coming and coming and coming, and and eventually the scoreline just kept ramping up, didn't it? Yeah. Now it was a. Uh, they've got the strength in depth, um, and the players that come on are 
are always fresh. They're, they're always quality and of high standard to come on. They All of them could be a, a starter. Um, yeah. And of, I mean, of speaking of starting 11s, that particular game was was a particularly strong starting 11 when you compare it to, say, the, the following Italy game. Famously, during the Euros, Serena picked that same starting le- um, starting 11 for all six games. I think Every it single was. match. She's, she's Every the only, single. only manager ever to pick um, the same team for um, a Euros um, men's or women's um, for a team that got to a final. And of course, they didn't just get to the final, they won it. They won it. Can we see this again, do you think? Is this her thinking? Um, I think that well, she did it in the Netherlands, of course. Um, I believe that I believe that's something that she did during the, the Euros at the Netherlands. Okay. Not, I think that's the case. Um, don't quote me on that though. Um, but you know, even if that is something that she thinks is a really important tenet, you know, taking into a tournament, you know, um, keeping the team the same. What's making it more difficult this summer? is just how many more options England have. Yeah, England had such depth at the Euros, but they've got even more depth now in terms of players who are really knocking loudly on the door to start. Chloe Kelly was, was um, perhaps, for, well, first of all, very unfortunate to get the ACL injury leading to the Euros, but, but then fortunate to get into the squad so quickly. And I don't think that she played enough club football um, or, or was close enough to the he- to the level that Lauren Hemp was operating at to maybe push her out. And so I was pleased that Lauren Hemp was starting in that tournament. But since then, players like Kelly herself um, and Lauren James, of course, in those wide areas are really knocking on the door. And in this tournament, we didn't see Lauren Hemp play as much football as we um, did see from her in the Euros. And, and I think that's absolutely fine because the players in form at the moment at club level are Lauren James and Chloe Kelly. And of course, Chloe Kelly in this tournament won the golden boot and Lauren James won player of the tournament. Um, so really, but the the level that Chloe Kelly, Lauren James and uh, Lauren Hemp are operating at now is so much higher than they were operating out of the Euros. Of course, Lauren James wasn't even at the Euros, that it means that it's going to be very difficult for Wiegmann to pick um, one of those to start on one side and Beth Mead, if she's fit, on the other or two of those and not to change that round. Mm. You know, how can you consign one of those players or two to the bench for the entire tournament? Um, so I think it's going to be difficult for her to to, to um, pick the same 11 in each match, even if that's what she wants. We've mentioned Lauren James there and, and Chloe Kelly as well. I when they announced Lauren James as, as player of the tournament, totally deserved. But I I did wonder, especially after that Belgium game, whether Chloe Kelly had run her close for, for player of the tournament. Perhaps Lauren James was just more consistent across those three games rather than Chloe Kelly just having a really good game against Belgium. But both of them are, again, shoo-ins for the, for the World Cup squad. Well, Chloe Kelly, I agree, actually, by the end of that. I mean, in that match, I'm not sure there was a performance from any player from any of those teams in this tournament that was at the level of Chloe Kelly's performance against Belgium. I'm sure you'd uh, presumably mm. agree with that. Yeah. But I think she was absolutely fantastic. She was a constant threat. And even after she scored those two goals, she hit the post after that, the yes. cross star. She was denied with a nice with a nice effort. She was absolutely on it. And and I do think she pushed Lauren James close, but I think it's the way that Lauren James plays. She plays like a footballer who's a different level above um, any other, you know, any other player on the pitch sometimes. And 
And I think it's the way that Lauren James plays that makes you think that she's almost singing to a different tune. So I think that's probably what won it for Lauren James in terms of player of the tournament. But, you know, how nice that we're arguing over who should have been player of the tournament and <laughs> the only people we're mentioning are England players. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. That is true. Well, just going from from front to back, Mary Earps, she, against Korea, had a, uh, had very little to do. I was sitting there with uh, with my daughter behind the goal and, and she said, just during the first half, she said she noticed that she hadn't really touched the ball and and the fact that she wouldn't have to go and wash her kit. Um, and likewise in the the Belgium game, very little to do until that that last minute where Belgium scored. In in fairness, a a very good goal and, and probably the goal of the night. Um, but again, I think Mary Oaks is is the number one goalkeeper for England at the moment, isn't she? Oh, absolutely. I mean, she's got more presence than the other goalkeepers and she's now got more experience having played through an entire Euros tournament. Um, But it was nice of England that it was nice to see England concede a stoppage time goal and still go up the other end and score another of their own. I mean, they are unbelievably relentless, aren't they? They are. They are very much. I've got a feeling, actually, that with the squad that Serena picked for this tournament, that I think every player had a little bit of match time bar Sandy McKeever in goal and I think Emily Ramsey who went home injured unfortunately that's right yeah and and I'm not so sure that Sandy McKeever is um is necessarily of England caliber quite yet so right. I think but so besides that yeah absolutely lovely that they were all able to get on the pitch and important for them all going into a world cup year where of course all of them are seeing that squad announcement for the for the world cup as kind of their 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 ticking clock basically mm. um so good of them all to get game time under their belt and obviously between now and the world cup there's uh, no doubt there'll be a couple of friendlies before the world cup but there's this Australia game has has been announced, and of course the Brazil game, the finalissima at Wembley. Both of those, I think, are are sterner tests than either Korea, Italy, or Belgium will be. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, and I think we'll know a lot more about England by then, um, or after watching those two games, than than we do now, because yeah, the quality is higher, as you say, but also we'll be much closer to the squad announcement and much closer to the tournament itself. So we'll have had a, a couple of months more. Um, or yeah, just just shy of a couple of months more form, kind of at, at club level, to see where these players are operating at, and um, by that point we can take the, the team selections a little bit more seriously. Um, so, that, but there'll be there'll be great events. I, I believe that both are sold out. Um, yeah. So that's that's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. The one thing that I think might be might come across a little bit controversial, um, but would it be a bad thing? Or would it be a good thing if England were to lose one of those games against either Australia or Brazil? Well, it would be a really it would be a really good thing, I think, because to they see how then, they react. I think they would then have very very valuable video evidence to go back and look at as to how they lost the match. The caveat to that, of course, is that if you lose one of those matches, let's say the finalissima to Brazil. You've lost. You can only lose one game in one way, can't you? And the only thing is that would be the only defeat that England have had in the last two years. So they'd probably go and 
this is this can't be helped by the way but they'd probably go and overanalyze how they lost that match right. and they'd maybe they you know you you they wouldn't give as much attention in terms of other ways in which you can lose matches and, and might indeed lose matches at the upcoming world cup you know if england lost that match on the break they you know they they they'd be looking at it like that and analyzing that and maybe not considering a potential defeat to a team who just dominate possession against them. But we know that there are teams at this com- upcoming World Cup who can dominate possession against England and could quite conceivably beat them. So, um, yes, it, you know, long story short, I think it would help England to lose one of those games in terms of what it means for the World Cup. But one defeat doesn't give you a lot more evidence to work with work with or a lot more le- like teachable knowledge than the no defeats does. Right. Okay, yeah, I kind of understand what you what what you're getting at. Yeah, I, I can see that. Going into the World Cup, I mean, we are we've got to be favourites, aren't we? I think so. Um, the, the only thing is, you know, um, England played six matches at the Euros. They played on home soil um, in all of them, um, but the Spain and the Germany games, um, they they took you know a lot longer to win those matches. They took extra time, both of them. And England were um, really pushed close in both. Now, without 90,000 people at Wembley and without the match being at Wembley against Germany, do they win that final? I, I don't know. I mean, you don't know either, but but no. I, we, we don't know. Um, so with that leveller, you know, being down under, not being at home, um, with a few players who were missing from the tournament maybe fit from other teams I'm talking about, and with England maybe not being able to count on Beth Mead, these are things that could that could level out. Um, are, are they are they things that stop England being favourites? I'm not sure they are, no. I think they're things that make other sides confident, more confident maybe than going into the Euros. But I think England, I agree, England are still favourites, yeah. I think there are other sides that can, that can challenge. Um, we don't know what's happening with France in terms of their players, obviously players yeah. like, and Wendy Reynard have um, supposedly pulled out at the moment due to conditions, and, and we'll see what happens there. Spain, of course, are in similar situation. Canada as well. Yeah. Um, but sides like the United States and Germany, they can hurt England, and they can hurt anyone. Um, but England are favourites. Yeah. Exciting times coming up, and no doubt we will uh, we'll catch up again very soon. Be it the lionesses or, or the men's senior side. Of course, you are. You still got the website englandfootball.org and I just wanted to to put on record as well congratulations on on getting a position at the evening standard. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've recently started that and I'm obviously absolutely loving it. Yeah. That's great. We can uh, read read your reports and and interviews in print and also of course online. Now, all the best to you Dom and, and let's speak again soon. That would be great. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Dom there, of course. You can follow him on social media. He's on Twitter, at Mr Dom Smith. Uh, and, of course, check out englandfootball.org. Dom will no doubt appear again on here very soon. Now, I know this episode has been predominantly about the Lionesses, but I couldn't let this one pass without paying my own tribute to John Motson. The commentator who recently passed away at the age of 77. For perhaps listeners who are outside of the country, 
John was a football commentator that many of a certain age, myself very much included, grew up with. Uh, he was known as Motti and famous for wearing a sheepskin coat, obviously in the winter. Uh, he was mainly on the BBC up until 2017 and he was the voice of 10 World Cups and 10 European Championships and 29 FA Cup Finals. And that was where I first heard him. I remember him as the voice of the 1987 Cup Final, famously between Coventry and Tottenham Hotspur. But he was also the voice of many an England game. I don't know if he ever commentated on the women. I would doubt it. Uh, But I've picked a few pieces from him from some famous England moments over the years. Oh, Deccan with the flick on. Rooney! England have equalised and it's Wayne Rooney whose first half performance certainly merits the goal and one number nine here replies to the other. Gerard again from the right hand side. Joe Cole's up. Oh, and there it is. It's the equaliser by Michael Owen and England are back at 2-2. Just look at the celebrations down for England. Crouch comes in far side. But then, oh, then we've got it. England have scored again. It's Michael Owen. It's 3-2. Owen. Oh, Owen 2 in a matter of minutes. This is Gascoigne. Did well. Ball is up front. Lineker is over on the right wing. Perrins challenges Gascoigne. Free kick given to England. Good position. A minute left. It's Gascoigne shaping to take it. And chipped in. And volley in. again now Heskey's to his left unmarked Emil Heskey could it be five yes it is listen to this Germany one England five goosebumps that's John Watson uh, who sadly passed away on the 23rd of February aged 77 Thank you, as always, for joining me. I'll be back again soon with some more England-related content. I hope you can join me for it. So until then, take care of yourselves. Cheers. Cheers.